You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 490 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, October 29th, 2022, and we've got a lot to get to. This is going to be a little bit of an oddball episode. I'm trying something different because this podcast in general is a experiment. It's an ongoing experiment. Uh, Less and less does it feel that way, I suppose, as I am now on episode 490. But I have found myself busy this week with my first week on the job with a new job as a controls programmer. And so I have not recorded as much. I've not been podcasting as much. We had plenty going on. And here I come Saturday. I've got some time. It's the morning. The rest of the day looks like we'll have things going on and it's now or never. So what do I do, right? Do I let another day go by without podcasting? My last episode was published on the 26th. That was three days ago. I had one before that. But before that, there were three days gap. And uh, I don't want to extend the silence any longer than I already have. There were good reasons. I was busy. We'll be busy again. But this episode, I've got a very much more brief outline and it's just bullet points. And uh, just for funsies, I decided I was going to make each one of these bullet points, if I could, three words long. I believe I kept to that. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven's a good number. That's the number of sons I have. Also, the number of points that I have in my outline for this episode. But each prompt reminder is uh, very prompt indeed. It's a prompt prompt and it's just three words long. And for one thing that cuts down on the time required to uh, prepare <laughs> the episode other than you know knowing generally what I want to talk about. I just have those three word bullet point prompts, seven of them for a total of 21, I suppose you could say words to get me through. And so we'll see how it goes. Should be fun. Uh, Not everything has to be planned to the nines. And it's interesting, you know, just as an aside with starting a new job, it's interesting to me how my perspective changes each time I do something new for work. And I like to think that everything in my career has been building one experience on the one that preceded it. This one certainly builds on my last experience as a, a systems integrator, more SCADA side. This current position is deep diving into uh, you know far fewer programs. My last position, it was a lot of bouncing between this server and that server and this program and that program, and a lot of bouncing between phone calls and emails and Teams meetings and people coming into the office and back and forth between the office and my house. And 
bouncing between programs and people and programs again and servers. And this job has a lot more emphasis on fewer but longer interactions with people, which I think is good. I think that's welcome. And a lot less emphasis on bouncing between programs, a lot more deep diving into just a few programs, especially Studio 5000, Factory Talk View, and uh, you know whatever documentation software I need to work off of. But as such, being such a deep dive, I'm curious as I go along how that's going to affect the way that I input uh, information generally from conversations, from books, from podcasts, from the news, you know, everything that's going on is likely to be processed differently by me. So I'll be consuming tags, if you will, uh, you know, information in, inputs in, and also too, as I am consuming information, consuming tags differently, I'll be also processing those bits of information, those details, those narratives differently. And so it it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, actually, that I then would change up the way I output information. I'm quick approaching. Well, maybe not quick uh, if I keep spacing out my episodes like I have been, but fast enough, episode 500 approacheth. And so it makes sense to me that we would change up the way that I'm podcasting, the way that I'm preparing to podcast. And also the way you're going to listen to this is probably going to be different. Hopefully I'm not spacing out my episodes quite so much as we go along, as I get into a rhythm, as I figure out what's my schedule, what's my workflow, where can I strategically get a podcast episode in, do some planning, do some prep work. Uh, you know, it, it could be it could be a better experience for you. Hopefully it's a better experience. I'm not promising it's going to be a better experience. I'm just saying it's going to be a different experience. So <laughs> different's not always better. Hopefully in this case it will be. And just like each work experience has built on the one before and the one before that and the one before that. So also every time I change up the way I'm podcasting, hopefully I'm building on the previous experience. I'm bringing the way that I was doing things before with me, even if I'm not doing the podcasting the same way that I was before, if that makes sense. But this episode, I want to talk about, for one thing, how the unvaccinated have been treated in recent years. And specifically, I'm talking about those who declined COVID vaccination. How have they been treated? What has been their experience? Or should I say our experience? I haven't gotten the COVID vaccine. I have no intention. I have no uh, willingness to get the COVID vaccine. Uh, If you try to force me to, I'll fight you. (laughs) I mean that not uh, metaphorically, and I'm not exaggerating. I will fight you. (laughs) Don't try it. Uh, But I want to talk about the experience of not being vaccinated and how that's gone. I also want to talk about 
underdogs and who we perceive to be underdogs. And what does that do for our perception? You know, it's a saying, everybody likes an underdog story. Everybody likes to root for the underdog. I don't know if everybody, there are probably some people who just, hey, I always like to pick the winners. Uh, Don't tell me to root for the underdog. Tell me to root for who's going to win. I want the guy to win, to win, right? Really win. And I want to be on his team. I want to be on the team of the winner. Uh, So we'll talk about underdogs and who they are and who they aren't. And what does it matter really (laughs) who the underdog is? Uh, Also, a few words about feminists and feminism. Speaking of underdogs, how do we perceive feminism in our day versus, oh, let's say a few decades ago or even just a few years ago? Uh, Also, the election coming up next week. I won't spend a lot, a lot of time on that, but I do want to give you a quick update on the latest election polling and what it perhaps pretends that those relate to the whole question of underdogs and feminists, for that matter. Uh, also, mortgage rates. What is the latest on the situation with regards to mortgage rates? On a personal note, actually, I don't want to deep dive into numbers and percentages and stats and how money works so much as uh, speaking more personally as it relates to the topic of mortgage rates. And then lastly, moderation, specifically content moderation. Elon Musk, as you may have heard, has finalized as of Thursday, according to SEC filings, his acquisition of social media giant Twitter. And he has outlined some new uh, content moderation guidelines and what to expect coming down the pike. Uh, More than no content moderation, but also not the same strategy that it was, shall we say. But starting us off, actually, again, on a more personal note, we have new flooring coming this Wednesday I got a call earlier this week from an installer here in Greeley asking when would work next week. He was hoping for the middle of next week, but when would work for us, for his crew to come in and tear out all of the flooring on our main floor and install new vinyl flooring. If you've visited my house, you know that it is nothing fancy. And there's a lot that is pretty well worn. The outside of the house needs repainted. The porch really needs paint. And that's been a conversation for several months. And it just doesn't seem as though there's an eagerness on the part of the owners to have that painting done anytime soon. There really was no reason to wait uh, from an objective standpoint or from our standpoint. It needs it. The house looks a bit rough in the meantime until the outside of the house gets painted. But the inside of the house, the flooring is in especially bad shape. The windows are uh, not the greatest. There's a lot of issues with discoloration and fogginess between the panes and just weird, uh, I don't know what to call it except for blemishes. And it's the case on a lot of the windows that they probably need to be replaced. Uh, They're certainly not 
pristine and it's not our favorite, but we don't dwell on it or we try not to dwell on it. We've got enough going on inside the house with all these children and homeschooling and working from home and podcasting and reading books and then obviously going out into the world and going to church and getting involved with friends of ours and families that we're friends with. We've got enough going on that we don't have to dwell on whether the windows are in the best of shape or the floors are in the best of shape or the paint on the outside of the house is in the best of shape. But it would be nice to have those things addressed. And we pay, uh, you know, what I would have thought 10 years ago was uh, a cost prohibitive rate every month for rent, no utilities included. We're paying $2,000 a month. And when I was a kid, that would have bought a mansion, certainly in Southern Ohio, certainly even in Eastern Montana, where I'm originally from, that would have bought a very nice new house. And decreasingly, is that the case, that you can buy a really nice house and pay the mortgage on it for 2000 a month? It's certainly not the case in this market, and it's certainly not the case uh, with regards to renting in particular that you can get a really, really nice house of the size that we need, I should add, with eight kids, plus my wife and I. Uh, But still, I mean, there are houses in our area that are for rent for not much more per month where everything's updated, the kitchen, the bathrooms, the floors, the walls, the outside, the curb appeal is there. And for some reason... Uh, there seems to be a reluctance on the part of the owners uh, to whom we are paying rent every month for over three years now to take some of that money that they're getting from us every month and put it back into the house, invest it back into the house to maintain the house. You know, the things that we're running into are really not, you know, ridden hard and put away wet type things. They are the materials that you picked out have a shelf life. They have a <laughs> they have a life cycle, and it is not indefinite. Uh, paint only lasts so long on the outside of the house. Floors only last so long on the inside of the house, especially if they weren't installed properly in the first place, which is the case with all of our tile on the main floor. Every one of the three contractors who came in to give us a bid, or give the owners a bid, or give the project. Uh, a look-see said this tile was not installed properly in the first place. That's why it's cracked everywhere. And so what do you do, right? You don't want to dwell on it, but we're going to be thankful when, by the good Lord's grace, we're able to get out uh, of this house and buy a house that's in better shape. We're hoping that is possible in the next year. But in the meantime, we're happy that we're going to be getting new floors. Apparently, too, with regards to uh, the bid that won, that was chosen, there was nothing put in the bid as far as moving furniture, uh, either out or back in again, which is unusual. I used to do flooring. We always moved furniture uh, out and in. It's not that complicated. Of course, on the front end, we said, hey, we've got a lot of books on these bookshelves. We'll move the books. And we'll move the small stuff, but apparently the third bid uh, included 
us moving, and we found this out from the flooring installer, which is great, which is super, very considerate, very nice, very charitable, uh, as he's calling to schedule it for next week. Uh, oh, yeah, so you guys are going to move all the furniture, right? Huh? Uh, yeah, yeah my, my quote didn't include anything as far as moving furniture. Great. Okay, wonderful. So that's what we'll be doing today, <laughs> tomorrow, and in the evening on Monday, and in the evening on Tuesday. But again, we're not going to complain about it. It's uh, regrettable. It's less than ideal. Some people would say it's unacceptable. We're just going to make the best of it. We're going to say, hey, uh, this is an opportunity for us to get some exercise and to rethink where we put our furniture, uh, maybe when we put it back in these spaces, look at it that way. And it'll be great to have new flooring that doesn't have giant holes in it. You know, I was very close to taking some modeling clay and just filling in one particular hole in the dining room. Uh, and keep in mind, I've been in touch with the property management company since June asking, can we potentially get these floors repaired? I wasn't even asking for replacement of everything. I was just asking, can we get the floors repaired? Uh, because we've got a giant hole in, in this one. You know, the, the tile cracked because it's a high traffic area. It's the intersection between the laundry room, bathroom, hallway, dining room. And so, of course, if they're all questionable, this one's going to go first. And it did. And uh, nevertheless... If it's going to get taken care of now, and that won't be a toe catcher, great. Fantastic. But in other news, speaking of things being less than ideal, also trying to not complain overly much, but still needing to be able to you know, know what your rights are, I guess you could say, uh, you know, before we get into talking about the unvaccinated and how they've been related to the past over two years, those who were unvaccinated and those who were saying on the front end, I don't intend to get the vaccine. You know, I actually ended up <laughs> uh, more or less implying that the situation with our flooring might be a legal issue. You know, and I said it very uh, even handedly. I've tried to be gracious, I've tried to be very uh, courteous, very polite, very long suffering. But at a certain point, you just say, uh, four months into trying to ask for repairs to be made. Uh, one of your sons tripping not once, but twice on the hole in the floor, in the tile. And at a certain point, you just kind of run out of patience. You've had three bids come in at this point, And each one of those was spaced out by a week or two. Like we're trying to slow walk this as long as we possibly can. And I finally said, to the property management uh, representative, <clears throat> you know, as she's calling and she's telling me that, you know, hey, I'm really sorry. I'm trying to talk the owners into it, but, uh, you know, they're just not sure they want to. It's really expensive and, you know, eight grand to redo all the flooring on the main floor, uh, which is, I'm, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, you've paid for that in the past four months of us <laughs> paying rent. We've always paid our rent. Uh, I haven't missed a single one, even through COVID. If we, you know, had to be creative with when we paid certain things. We always paid our rent without fail. We didn't take advantage of 
any of the moratorium on eviction and you know any of that stuff. But I asked her, I said, well, is, you know, is this a potential legal issue at all with regards to the safety of the home? And she hemmed and she hawed and she says, well, no, I, I don't think we want to go there. And, uh, you know, it's not, I don't know that it's really a safety issue because you could put a rug over it. And I'm just thinking like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, seriously? <laughs> right. Uh, I pay $2,000 a month to put a rug over a hole in the floor. Okay. Wonderful. Uh, but, you know, magically, it was just, it was uh, almost like somebody said abracadabra because five minutes after I got off the phone with her, suggesting that maybe this is a legal issue by the letter of the law with regards to uh, renter's rights in the state of Colorado, she texted and said, oh, hey, good news, great news, actually. Uh, everything's been approved. The owner's approved. You getting new floors. I thought, oh, wow, okay. Hmm. So that's how that works, apparently. Four months ago, maybe, I should have mentioned something about the legal details. But it's neither here nor there. What do you do? You just move on and make a mental note, I suppose, that here is yet another reason that it is uh, preferable when possible, not always possible, but preferable when possible to own your own home and to do with it what you will and to not have to get approval not have to go through three layers of red tape and uh, whatnot. But in other news, and speaking of legal rights and the importance of knowing them and being able to reference them when necessary and people not always uh, doing what is appropriate, sometimes being selfish and very stingy uh, or ruthless, discrimination against the unvaccinated, or before that, against those who didn't want to wear masks all the time, 100% of the time, or who didn't want to be locked in their homes for months on end, or fired from their jobs. There was an interesting video that was sent to me by my friend Lucas Abernathy of the new premiere of Alberta. Alberta, if you're not familiar, is a province up in Canada. It's actually a very conservative province up in Canada. Typically, it is just north of Montana, where I'm originally from and where we moved here to Colorado from. Actually, the company that I now work for, the engineering firm, is headquartered in Calgary, Alberta. And so I'm dealing a lot with calls from Canada, from HR and such uh, documents controllers who operate out of Calgary. And between Alberta and Saskatchewan, actually working in the oil fields of eastern Montana and western North Dakota for seven years, we had a lot of folks who came down out of Canada. I worked for another Canadian company before we moved to Colorado. Uh, ZI was headquartered in Calgary as well. Had a lot of interactions with uh, engineers and programmers up there and managers up there. And so I'm actually fairly familiar with Alberta politics from talking with, uh, you know, guys that would come down to work in North Dakota because Canada politics on the eastern side of the country based out of Ontario, especially with Justin Trudeau in charge, 
have been very unfriendly in recent years towards the oil and gas industry in Canada. Uh, very similar to Barack Obama and Joe Biden uh, in terms of their outlook, very opposed for some reason to North America being energy independent. And Alberta, it's been said, is very similar in its politics to, let's say, Texas. Uh, you know, very much, uh, you know, blue collar loggers and oil field workers and ranchers and farmers and folks that make their living by the sweat of their brow, working with their hands, as opposed to the eastern side of the country or the western side of the country, which, similar to the U.S., does more trade internationally and is more uh, influenced, I guess you could say, by corporate executives who are more globalist in their outlook. The middle of the country, the middle of Canada, much more interested in what are our interests as Canadians, much more interested in where the rubber meets the road because they spent a lot of time on the road. And you'll remember here about a year ago, there were trucker protests that got cracked down on due to uh, a looming vaccine mandate from Justin Trudeau's government, a vaccine mandate that truckers were very against, and they were in a position to make themselves heard. And it was billed as being this uh, you know, extremist terrorist threat that these truckers were going to go on strike. They were going to shut down major cities. They were going to drive to Ontario. They were going to clog up uh, traffic there and honk their horns and keep people awake and just, you know, ah, it's the worst, right? It's literally, you know, Canada's 9-11, basically, that these truckers are saying, no, I'm not going to get vaccinated. And no, you're not going to destroy my ability to provide for my family if I refuse to get vaccinated. But there's a new premier, uh, a premier being, you know, kind of like a governor, I guess you could say, uh, provincially in Canada's politics. There's a new premier, Danielle Smith, for Alberta. And she's had some, I think, uh, very favorable things to say for a conservative uh, down here in the U.S. to hear it's nice to hear that there are Canadians who are like-minded uh, up north and our neighbor to the north, that it's not just Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, being <laughs> buddies with the likes of Gavin Newsom and Lori Lightfoot and uh, Joe Biden and Barack Obama before Joe Biden. You know, it's not just that to our north where they do joint military exercises, uh, wintertime military training uh, with China, for instance. That was a true story. Look it up. That happened. Uh, not to dwell on that too much. There are Canadian politicians and Canadian uh, men and women, Canadian citizens, who are facing the exact same dynamics with regards to globalism and leftism to our north as we are here in the U.S., and the conversations sound very, very similar. The kinds of things that are being proposed or rammed through and the upset that's causing for practical salt of the earth, sweat of your brow type folks, uh, it's good to hear 
what this premier has to say regarding the unvaccinated. So I'm going to play a clip of her speaking to this. She gets a question and she answers it with regards to what she thinks regarding uh, the Human Rights Act, what she thinks of Alberta's position on unvaccinated folks. Uh, What's her take? I'll play the clip and then uh, I've got some things to add or comment on with regards to it. So take a listen. I have a question about vaccine choice and how you want to protect that under the Human Rights Act. I'm wondering how um, vaccine choice, um, how you see that is equal to something like race, gender, sexuality, which we protect because those are not about choices. Well, I guess the way I look at it is that the community that faced the most restrictions on their freedoms in the last year were those who made a choice not to be vaccinated. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. That's a pretty extreme level of discrimination that we have seen. I don't take away any of the discrimination that I've seen in those other groups that you mentioned, but this has been an extraordinary time in the last uh, year in particular. And I want people to know that I find that unacceptable, that we are not going to create a segregated society on the basis of a, of a medical choice. I think that there was a, a lot of hope that the vaccine would offer a sterilizing immunity. And as a result, I think everybody was working very hard to get to a high level of vaccination. We've now seen that it mutates dramatically and we have to start treating it a lot more like influenza. Now, influenza has about a one third of the population and decides each year to protect themselves with vaccination. I think we're right now at a level of booster shots of 39% of people deciding to protect themselves. And I think that's the way we have to start talking once again about this particular type of vaccine is that vaccination really is for self-protection in this case, because you have to make your own choice about what your own medical status is in conjunction with your own doctor and your own pre-existing medical conditions. And we have to stop trying to victimize uh, a, a particular group because they've make it, made a different choice. So I know that that's going to be um, a little challenging for, for some people who hold a, who've been holding a different view for a long period of time. But if I need to make the point that this kind of discrimination is unacceptable, the best way to do it is by changing the Human Rights Act. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm. Okay, so... How about that? Speaking of discrimination, there is this idea that has become unassailable, unquestionable uh, in its premise, in its underlying assumption that to discriminate against anyone is wrong. Discrimination is a bad word. And we don't use discrimination anymore in our day, in a positive sense, we always use it in a negative sense. And I would push back on that a little bit, uh, similar to pushing back on the idea that many conservatives hold to, that moderation 
you know, with regards to content or what people are saying online or in public, you know, that that's always uncalled for. It's always a negative thing. You know, for progressives, discrimination is always a bad thing. I would push back on that and say that sometimes discrimination is not just neutral, it's necessary, it's good. Take, for instance, I'm looking at this on the website for cbc.ca. And there's popular now in news, uh, top five stories that are very uh, much getting attention and look-sees and people are reading on cbc.ca, this news organization up in Canada. You know, one of them, the number one, is U.S. murder rates have surged and these cops have theories about why, right? So to take this for an example, we discriminate against murderers, or we should. We ought to. We don't say that those who commit murders are welcome in society in the same way that those who would be their victims but are not murderers themselves are welcome in society. That's a good kind of discrimination, right? Also, too, if I skip on down to the number five most popular story in this list, Nancy Pelosi's husband violently assaulted by intruder at California home, police say. Maybe if police had not shown up, it wouldn't have been a murder, but odds are high, right? Our expectation is if police had not shown up, Nancy Pelosi's husband would have been murdered by this uh, you know, crazy, evil maniac. But we discriminate, right? You don't call the police on Nancy Pelosi's husband if you're the maniac and then expect the police to come and arrest Nancy Pelosi's husband because he faces this uh, home invader with a hammer and says, get off my property, right? You're trespassing. You have no right to be here. I don't know who you are. You're a crazy person, right? We, we discriminate in this case, intuitively and rightly so, between the person who is invading your home and you if you're having your home invaded. Well, so also with regards to vaccination, it's important to note the distinction that Danielle Smith, Alberta's new premier, is making between those who get the vaccine and who those who don't. Those who get the vaccine are protecting themselves as they see it. They're making a choice that they believe is going to protect them from COVID. Uh, increasingly, it looks like that's not the case as she draws the comparison to the flu and says that this COVID business uh it, you know, is is turning out to be much more like the seasonal flu, which is something that a lot of people were getting uh, censored online. Speaking of censorship and moderation, a lot of people were getting censored online early on, and for quite some time, as they said, this you know, it sounds like the flu. Like it, it's a bad case of the flu, sure, to to be clear, uh, but it's something that you know we don't do. Uh, to lock everyone in their homes and shut everything down and close down the economy, shut down the world every time the seasonal flu starts flaring up. And we just flat can't afford it on an individual basis, on a societal basis, on a global basis to tell everyone, 
you can't work, close your business, stop going to church, stop going to school. Uh, your life is on hold indefinitely because you might get sick or somebody else might get sick through you. And so she's talking here about the folks who made the choice, will make the choice to get vaccinated against COVID. She says the number's 39% there in Canada. And that's their choice. And it's a self-protective measure to make the choice to get yourself vaccinated. But we should discriminate, if you will, if you follow me, we should distinguish between you making the choice to get the vaccine to protect yourself and, on the other hand, you trying to force and coerce someone else to get the vaccine to protect yourself. There is a major ethical problem. There's a major, a major moral problem in accepting the premise that to protect yourself, you can then go and forcibly vaccinate your neighbor. You know, that, that has to be discriminated against, that attitude of I can now force my neighbor to get vaccinated to protect myself or to feel safer, right? Like Justin Trudeau banning the importation of handguns from other countries like the U.S. especially, or trying to restrain or prohibit the sale of handguns within Canada, because Canadians, as he says, have a right to feel safe in their own homes. There's a world of difference between you on the one hand deciding to not get a firearm because you'll feel safer in your own home not owning a firearm, and on the other hand, you prohibiting your neighbors from getting a firearm to have in their own home. Because again, what if you're Nancy Pelosi's husband? You're going to meet this intruder at the door with a hammer and then he wrestles it out of your hands because you're 80 something years old and he's crazy. Uh, The law enforcement that shows up that answers the call, they don't show up with hammers. They show up with firearms and not for no reason. And so what if your neighbor says, well, I feel safer. Justin Trudeau, you say I have a right to feel safe in my own. I feel safer owning a handgun. I feel safer owning firearms in case somebody breaks into my home looking for my wife. So what we have here is I I think we have a, a breakdown in our ability to understand the meaning of words because we have a breakdown in the basis for our moral judgments. It's not possible to avoid discriminating. The key is, are you discriminating along the right lines? Because let's suppose... Danielle Smith is very successful up in Canada in having the Alberta Human Rights Act modified to include those who are unvaccinated, that they are protected from discrimination. They cannot be fired for being unvaccinated. They can't be removed from positions of authority for being unvaccinated. They can't be canceled. You know, if they've got a book deal, for instance, they can't be canceled for being unvaccinated. They can't be removed from teaching positions in universities and schools uh, for being unvaccinated. Let's suppose you adjust the Alberta Human Rights Act to protect those who are unvaccinated from being discriminated against. And then employers, schools, institutions, individuals 
proceed to do exactly what you told them they're not allowed to do towards the unvaccinated. Well, now you've got to administer some kind of a penalty, a fine or arrest of those who have violated your Alberta Human Rights Act and they've discriminated against the unvaccinated. You will have to discriminate against those who are discriminating against the unvaccinated. And so the key here is to be having a a much more robust discussion about right and wrong, about good and evil, about what right do you have to force someone else to get a vaccine that has not been tested uh, sufficiently. It's being tested on 39% of the population of Canada, for instance. But here in the U.S., we're seeing a lot of headlines about this or that otherwise seemingly healthy person suddenly alarmingly dropping dead in public. We're seeing a lot of headlines about this or that famous person, not all of them very old, just suddenly dying, mysteriously dying for no apparent reason, cause of death unknown. And the big question on a lot of people's minds, especially those who were very skeptical of the COVID vaccine, the question on a lot of people's minds is, is this due to the vaccine? Is this due to blood clots, for instance? Is this due to uh, a heart issue that's caused by the vaccine? There's a lot of reports of, if you'll forgive me, uh, you know, irregularities in women's menstrual cycles. There's a lot of concern about how this is going to affect fertility. And all along the way, we've seen valid concerns, valid objections, valid questions that could be onto something silenced because they're called misinformation. The ones sharing those uh, questions, raising those questions, being deplatformed, removed from the public square, from a, a position where they could communicate and affect other people's opinions uh, or willingness to get the vaccine. We've seen increasingly those objections, those questions turn out to be well-founded. And how long before we potentially find that what seemed like the most crazy and far-fetched speculations about the COVID vaccine actually turn out to be right on the nose. That's something to consider. And for those who are saying, I'm not going to get the vaccine, it's very similar to the handguns question. They're saying, I'm not going to get the vaccine because they don't feel like that would actually safeguard their health. They feel like that would potentially cause much more damage to their health. That would threaten their life much more than getting the vaccine. The folks who are getting the vaccine presumably think they're protecting themselves. The folks who say, I'm not going to get the vaccine also believe that by that choice, they're protecting themselves. And that's important to note. But we have to have a discussion about ethics and morality to say these are both valid choices or one of these choices is valid and the other is invalid. We have to have a much more robust discussion And not just say, and I I get what's being done here. It's a workaround to say this is a human rights issue or the Alberta Human Rights Act needs to be amended. But at its root, we have to get back to underlying principles, underlying premises. But in other news, before we completely run out of time talking about flooring 
and discrimination against the unvaccinated. There's an interesting segment that aired recently on MSNBC. A pollster was talking with a focus group of Generation Z, Gen Z uh, young people about feminism. And more to the point, he was curious what they think of feminism. Do they have a positive opinion, a high opinion of feminism? Do they have a neutral opinion of feminism? Do some people have very favorable views, other people very unfavorable views, or what? And I'm going to play the clip. I've got a couple of things to say with regards to uh, what the responses are from Gen Z young people to this MSNBC pollster. Here you go. John Delavolpe is the director of polling at Harvard's Institute of Politics. He gathered a group of Gen Zers to ask about movements that have impacted them. Me Too didn't come up until he asked. Feels like forever ago. Um, I was, I think, a freshman in high school when that took off all of the allegations. I mean, I honestly forgot that it feels like forever ago. And it's more than just the Me Too reckoning. When it comes to feminism, attendees mostly rejected the label. What does it mean to be a feminist today? That's a really good question. I think there's a certain stigma that goes along with being a feminist, at least in my yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's hear it. Almost this extremist view. I think that a lot of labels are viewed as something that's very extremist. Now, it's not just this apathy to the movement that exists. There's a much darker side that's developed over the last five years, especially with Gen Z males, a total rebellion to any feminist notion whatsoever and a blossoming of misogynistic content with billions of views. There are plenty of people who prey, I think, on these specifically young men trying to lure them in to a community where they can feel better, they can feel some strength, and then that strength turns into a community which has a very different view, I think, of what's right and what's wrong. They talk very openly about their views of of women and um, the rules around rape. It's okay to rape women of a particular race as long as they're within our race rather than other women. So to be clear, I don't know where those conversations are happening, that it's okay to rape somebody of a different race or your own race or what have you. I don't know where those conversations are happening. I've heard nothing of the sort. Um, I don't really care to hear anything of the sort uh, for that matter. But it's interesting. It's interesting that feminism is being likened to extremism by Gen Z young people who have grown up and come of age with the Me Too movement front and center. This is an important thing that I think is missed on older generations of maybe the past several decades. In far too many cases, this was true with regards to divorce rates among those who got married during the sexual revolution or they came of age during the sexual revolution and they got married subsequently. And then 50% of them got divorced in the nineties. Like my parents got divorced, uh, late nineties prior to early two thousands. I came of age in the mid two thousands, graduated high school, 2005, went off to college, 2006, talked my wife into 
marrying me <laughs> at the end of 2006. We started our family around the time of the Great Recession, 2008. But then you've got the Me Too business, 2015, 2016, right around the time that Donald Trump is running for president. Go figure. And what's it like for 20-somethings who, as they were getting to the age where, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, they would have been getting married, all of a sudden, the news is filled with this or that high-profile person having three, four, five dozens uh, of women come forward accusing them of rape or sexual assault or sexual harassment going back decades. What's the effect on 20 to 25-year-old men and women when, for the men, they're basically being told they are, until proven innocent, to be assumed guilty of either being a rapist or a potential rapist or a would-be rapist. What's the effect on 20 to 25-year-old women in the heyday of the Me Too movement when they're being told that every potential mate is either a rapist or a potential rapist? What's the effect on them psychologically of feminism uh, out for blood and the whirlwind being reaped that was sown, uh, the wind that was sown in the sexual revolution coming to fruition with all of a sudden finding a limit, I guess you could say, on the excess and the limits of free love, so-called. What's the effect on them? Well, in part, I think you find MSNBC shocked and appalled that a lot of those young people have concluded that feminism is to blame. I think part of the shock here is that MSNBC hasn't really looked in the rearview mirror or looked at itself in the mirror for a long, long time. The left in media, in academia, in politics, in broader society, is so focused on crusading against norms that it doesn't realize, <laughs> for instance, if you're the gal introducing the segment and then bridging gaps in the clips, it doesn't realize the implications of calling these attitudes from Gen Zers rebellion against feminism. That's a curious word to use with regards to feminism. Because feminism was supposed to be this counterculture thing, upending thousands of years of patriarchy in human history, in human society, in Western civilization in particular, it seems like disproportionately, but trying to reform and overhaul human psychology comprehensively at every level. And then uh, by and large, actually succeeding except for pockets of resistance here and there, especially among conservative Christians in the West, feminism has ruled the roost for decades to the point that MSNBC doesn't even realize what they're saying maybe when they say that Gen Zers are now rebelling against feminism. Basically, what you're acknowledging is that feminists rule the world, like Beyonce. <laughs> Who rule the world? Girls. We rule the world the women say. And the Gen Zers are looking at Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris 
And I think they're thinking to themselves, if that's feminism, I don't want it. If feminism is what broke up my family, I don't want it. If feminism is part of why I grew up without a dad in the home, I don't want it. On both sides, because feminism affects men, it affects women. I don't want it. If that's liberation, I don't want to be liberated. But this really undergirds and affirms the truth of scripture, where we talk about, as Christians, slavery to Christ on the one hand, or slavery to sin, which leads to death on the other hand. The big question is not, who are you subject to in the minds of the left, of the progressives? They don't realize that they are now the man, or the woman, if you will, they are now the man that they were campaigning against for decades. And so there's a devolution, there's a disintegration. At a certain point, deconstruction deconstructs itself. At a certain point, when you see through everything, you see nothing. And that's where these kids find themselves, these young people, 20-somethings, find themselves. And that's part of why they're gravitating increasingly to voices online who are pointing out that actually in campaigning against discrimination and always trying to find another rock to turn over to look for an example so you can keep the campaign alive, maintain relevance, you're actually creating victims. When divorce laws were changed initially to favor women disproportionately and to remove the necessity of either party being at fault in a moral sense, the advertisement was that this was going to be empowering, it was going to be liberating, but the judge and the lawyers for the soon-to-be ex-husband, soon-to-be ex-wife, they all agreed. And what about their children? What about their kids who had to get shuttled back and forth between mom's house and dad's house, who had to be a witness to the petty antics back and forth, who maybe even potentially were abused because this boy or that girl reminded either their father or their mother of the wife they had put away or the husband they had put away. In the vast majority of cases, it's the women. 75%, I think, is the stat I've heard, or 70 to 80%. I'm picking the middle point. 70 to 80% of divorces are filed by women. And what do the kids think of that when they grow up and they have their own mind to speak? Well, apparently, they think that feminism is extremist, actually. And apparently, too, since they don't have a dog in the fight except maybe trying to restore some semblance of sanity to their own lives, to their own hearts and minds, perhaps their dog in the fight is getting away from that. And I think that's a positive sign. I hope it's enough of a positive sign and that we can look forward to there being an openness to young people, upcoming generations, wanting to go to God's word, wanting to read what God says about his intentions, his promises, his plans, his commands, his precepts, his blessings on men and women who are faithful. Hopefully that's what this is a sign of. But in other news, speaking of 
starting a family or raising a family and what all goes into that. The Washington Post tagline, democracy dies in darkness. I don't know that that's a warning so much as a promise or a threat. Uh, The Washington Post has a piece by Rachel Siegel and Kathy Orton from two days ago, October 27th. In the economy section, mortgage rates rise above 7% as Fed scrambles to slow economy. Now, don't get me started on the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve should not be in the position to manipulate our economy the way that it is. I have reasons for saying that. Ask me some other time, or I'll do a podcast episode when I finish The Creature from Jekyll Island. But the big idea, the big takeaway is that asking prices from home sellers are going down and down and down and down and down to try and keep up with mortgage rates rising and the capacity for potential home buyers to actually purchase and afford the home and get approved for a mortgage and actually pay that mortgage payment every month. Uh, as that capacity is dwindling and prospective home buyers are deciding now is not a good time to buy, you're seeing home prices go down and down and down and down. And the result of that is going to be a whole lot of people who otherwise want to be able to sell their homes and move on, move to a different state, move to a different city, move into a smaller home, move into a bigger home. You're going to see increasingly people making this trade-off where they accept a much higher interest rate on a mortgage in exchange for a much lower uh, purchase price. And hopefully it hits a nice sweet spot at some point. Who knows when it will. Right now we're at the highest mortgage rate level in 20 years, and it probably will go higher. I think it will go higher. But as the Federal Reserve is trying to fight inflation through any other means besides just not printing money to pay for everything under the sun that we can't afford, the housing market, I don't know if you could say it is crashing or it's about to crash. Uh, I would say it's its probably crashed and it is going to hurt a lot of people that they can't buy a home. You know, for several years, there was money just flying left and right and people were buying homes at ridiculous prices. And fortunately for us, for my family, we sold our home in Montana before the crash for a little more than what we paid for it. Not a whole lot more, but a little more. All things considered, we probably broke even, honestly, between putting money into fixing things up before we rented it out when we moved down here and what we got in rent in the time that we were down here. We probably broke even, all things considered, but we didn't lose money and we're not stuck with the house anymore. But the last thing you want to do, and I can speak from experience, is buy a home when the market is way up, like it's been, especially here in Colorado, and then see that market drop off and nobody's buying homes and the prices have to go down and down and down and down. And now you're just going to have to eat that difference. You're just going to have to carry that difference or else hold on to the home. You're just stuck with it. Opportunity comes up to move somewhere else, to move to a different state, for instance, to get better employment, better opportunities there. And you're stuck. You can't leave. 
or you're stuck renting it out and potentially renting it out from out of state. Uh, that's not an ideal scenario. I, again, I speak from experience. It's stressful. It's unpleasant. It's unfortunate. And it really hinders young people. It affects most of all young people who otherwise would be maybe getting married, having children, and trying to build a life together when they can't buy a home. Or like in our case, we've got eight kids when you're stuck renting because a home, the proper size, if you wanted to get into a bigger home is going to be cost prohibitive. So what I think from a personal standpoint, putting aside politics for a second, putting aside what to make of the Federal Reserve and how it needs to be audited. From a personal standpoint, what I'm hoping to do is wait until this bottoms and asking prices for homes are as low as they possibly can get. In the meantime, I'm working on building my brand, trying to maximize my earning potential to make as much money as I possibly can to pay off debts, to build up savings so that we can buy when the market is at its very bottom. And if we have to take a higher interest rate than we would like to in the short to medium term, well then, if and when, Lord willing, the mortgage rates turn around, what we'll do is we'll refinance. So a saying that might be helpful to remember, a little bit of advice here as far as real estate goes, you buy the price, but you date the rate. You're dating the rate because you can refinance later, but good luck if you buy a house that's asking prices way overinflated, like many houses here in Colorado have been, we're looking at half million dollar homes that are really not all that special. Certainly not half a million dollars special. Wait until those homes are going for, oh, I don't know, 300,000, maybe 280. Wait until those asking prices come down and down and down and down and down. And even if you have a higher interest rate, you refinance later. That's a word to the wise. Don't buy high and sell low. And it has to do with supply and demand. Supply and demand is the linchpin of economics. You understand that, you will understand why prices go up and down over time for various things. It's because more people want this thing or there's less of a supply. But if there's a lot of houses on the market because nobody can sell them, you're going to see the asking prices come down and down and down. Buy at the bottom and then ride it back up because it'll come back around, I hope. If the world stands, provided we don't implode here in the US, and I hope that we don't, it'll come back around. It cycles like a sine wave up and down and up and down. Just give it time. Speaking of things cycling and sine waves and up and down, not the B reports, Daniel Payne writing yesterday, a midterm update, midterm elections here in the U.S. are next week. The GOP looks to have the U.S. House on lock, while the Senate increasingly looks like it will fall to Republicans as well. So he's got listed here in his article, projections from 538. There's a graph that you can't see, but I can see, but I'll throw a link in the episode description. You can check it out. Republicans right now have 82 in 100 odds chances of controlling the House. The odds are looking really good. According to Real Clear Politics, their projection of the map has Republicans 
comfortably at 225 seats to Democrats, 173. And they've got 37 toss-ups, which could potentially make that even more a Republican victory, a landslide, if you will. For the Senate, it's looking a bit more even. Now, 538, I, I don't know. I don't know how they come up with this, but they're thinking that Democrats have a 52 in 100 chance of maintaining control of the Senate. But these lines on this graph are crossing over. And it looks to me like Republicans are going to overtake. RCP has Republicans picking up Nevada, Georgia, and Arizona for a majority of 53 to 47. So it could well be that Republicans are just about to have both the House and the Senate. A lot can change. A lot can change uh, even between now and next week. I am convinced that there was widespread fraud in the 2020 election. Hopefully it doesn't happen again in the midterms here. If it doesn't, I think we're going to see some major overhaul. I hope we're going to see some major overhaul in Washington, D.C. that is beneficial, that helps stem the tide of corruption, that helps make the U.S. a better place to live. I think we should seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us, uh, or the state, or the country, and Republicans winning is the best way for us to seek that right now. From a political standpoint, Republicans are the way to go. Democrats, not so much. Now, we don't want just any old Republicans. We need Republicans who are conservatives, who stand on principle, who know what they're about, who are not just going to act like, vote like, talk like, walk like Democrats once they're voted in. But nevertheless, which is better? A chance that you're going to have actual conservatives making principled decisions about right and wrong, good and evil, or a guarantee like we have from the Democrats that you're going to get aborted babies, mutilated children, fiscal insanity, international chaos. When you put it in those terms, uh, I don't think there's any question which way we need to vote. We have to vote Republican. Uh, If that changes in the future and we have different political parties and we've got a better one, that's okay with me too. We used to have wigs here in the U.S., and we don't anymore, and that's fine. And maybe the Republican Party doesn't last forever, but uh, also, too, maybe the Democrat Party doesn't last forever. That would be uh, quite all right if the Democrat Party just goes the way of the dinosaur. Here's hoping. It's something to uh, pray for, dare I say it. Speaking of Democrats and underdogs. Kathy Hochul, Democratic New York governor, has declared herself the underdog in her re-election campaign against Republican Lee Zeldin. New York has been held by the Democrats for a long time, and it doesn't seem as though it's possible that we would have a Republican governor of New York State. It doesn't seem like that's a possibility. But it is a possibility, and the polling is indicating that. Or is it? Or is it? 
Actually, funny story, it's not. So the average from RCP shows Hochul leading by 7.3 points, which is astounding. You can hardly imagine how that's possible, but there you have it. How she says she's an underdog, she should be, but she's not actually. How she says it when she's ahead 7.3 points in the RCP average, uh, I don't know. But what does it matter really, right? What's all this about this or that person being the underdog? Who cares, right? RCP is ranking it, interestingly enough, a toss-up. Their projection is that the Dems will hold on to the governorship. Hochul will get reelected. But they're ranking it a a toss-up, even though the average of the polling has her 7.3 points ahead. Lee Zeldin, the Republican, makes a lot more sense, a great deal more sense, objectively. And New Yorkers need to know that. And the U.S. needs to know that. But it is a curious thing. And I want to talk about this actually from the standpoint of why we root for underdogs. What's that about? I want to talk about that more than actually whether Lee Zeldin or Kathy Hochul would make a better governor objectively. I actually think it's a bit silly to always root for the underdog. You know, what if the underdog has rabies? Do you still vote for the underdog? You know, it it could be that the underdog is just a really stand-up character who hasn't been corrupted from being the top dog. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is a saying that I actually would disagree with. I know a lot of people think that's just what it is, but I would say actually if that were true, then we would expect God to be absolutely corrupt. And it's not. It's not true that God is absolutely corrupt. He's absolutely holy. So I think what you actually need to modify that saying to be more closely in alignment with is corrupt men are drawn to power. And corrupt men who realize their own inadequacy and they're trying to compensate for it very often want more and more and more power because they think the more power they get, the more they can make up for their own inadequacy and their own failings. And meanwhile, we're not called to that as Christians. To be clear, we're not called to that way of thinking. Paul the Apostle prays for God to remove a thorn in the flesh three times. And God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is shown perfectly in weakness. So God's absolute power is good and holy, and it accomplishes exactly what God wants it to 100% of the time, always. He always wins in the end. Maybe not in our timeline or when we would like, in all the ways we would like, but we're not God. And this is where I think if there is an appropriateness at all to rooting for underdogs, it has to be qualified. Root for the guy who doesn't want power for power's sake, who's not flashy and showy, who's not trying to deceive you into thinking he's already won when he hasn't, when he's not a winner, actually. Morally, he's bankrupt or he's corrupt or he's wicked or he's evil or he's deceitful or he's a murderer or fraudulent or what have you, right? Don't root for the person who, from a material standpoint alone, 
has everything going for them. The race does not go to the swift, actually. Consider Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going, which, to my way of thinking, might be part of why sometimes underdogs do win. It's the old tortoise and the hare fable. The hare rests on his laurels, decides, hey, you know what? I'm way ahead. I can take a nap. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with all your strength. Do it to the best of your abilities. Pursue excellence in whatever you do. Whatever you are, be a good one. (laughs) But then verse 11 picks up. Solomon writes, Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Now, that's a very bleak outlook, but there's a point to it. The point is, be humble. Be humble. I think what a lot of folks mistake in rooting for underdogs is being behind for being humble. And it's not necessarily that this person is so humble inherently at their root. Consider Job. Job Job has everything going for him. What is it that Satan says to God? If you take the blessings away from him, he will curse you to your face. And God says, all right, take everything away. And what is it that we find as Satan is allowed to take everything from Job except for his life? Job was blameless in what he said. He was blameless. When God restores Job to better than he was materially, socially, health-wise, financially, before Satan had been let loose on him, Job may be wiser, but he's no longer the underdog anymore. He might be humbler, but see, you can be humble from a position of strength or a position of weakness if you recognize your limitations, you recognize your finitude. It's okay to do well. You don't have to feel guilty for doing well. Give thanks in all circumstances. That includes when you do well. That includes when you win. And I would say, if you're a third party and you're looking at a political candidate or somebody to have a relationship with, somebody to partner with in business or in some endeavor, don't look first and foremost at, is this person already successful to where I can just ride their coattails? No, no, no. Also, don't look at, are they in a sorry state because it can only go up from here? No. Character. Do they work diligently at whatever their hand finds to do? Are they humble? Do they fear God? That's the big question. Whether you're looking for someone to marry, someone to be friends with, someone to do business with, someone to vote for, someone to follow, look at those things and they won't steer you wrong. Lastly, last but not least, you may have heard Elon Musk has officially acquired Twitter. And according to reporting by Ryan Saavedra over at the Daily Wire, Twitter's new CEO, now Elon Musk, 
is going to be putting together a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints to consider folks who've had their accounts uh, suspended or revoked or they are locked out of them like yours truly, like myself. They're not going to reinstate any accounts just yet. Anyone suspended for minor or dubious reasons will be freed from Twitter jail, Musk said, but not until after this council convenes and has a chance to talk things over. He says in a tweet that is highlighted here in the uh, Daily Wire piece by Ryan Saavedra, and I quote, to be super clear, we have not yet made any changes to Twitter's content moderation policies. Now, also interesting to note is that Tesla engineers already got in and locked Twitter's engineers out of the system lest they do anything funny at the last moment while they look things over, see what's there, see how it's put together. 75% of the workforce at Twitter may be eliminated. Some of his first actions were to fire the CEO and the CFO. The person responsible for censoring the Hunter Biden laptop story is no longer there. It sounds like former President Donald Trump will be allowed back on. He could come back on if he wanted to, but he's got his own social media platform, Truth, that he said he's going to stay at, and he doesn't think Twitter can be successful without him. I don't agree. I think that's hubristic. Um, yeah, I I think we need a public square and we need more than just Donald Trump to be speaking in it. Appreciative though I am for Donald Trump's contributions during his four years as president, I don't think that we are handicapped either online or in the real world if... He says, well, I'm just going to take my ball and go home, or I'm going to go over here on Truth Social Media. If they've got something good going on over at Truth, great. Uh, I still have yet to create an account. If you or anyone you know, by the way, has checked it out, I would be interested to hear what your experience has been, if you liked it, what you thought. I haven't had any interest. I've been busy enough as it is. I haven't had any interest in exploring something new. I should definitely check it out shortly. While I'm waiting to have my a Twitter account reinstated, I suppose. But I think it's okay, if I may. I'm not a libertarian, although I do lean libertarian in many regards. I think it's okay for there to be content moderation. For instance, I can't tell you the number of times I've been scrolling through Facebook or YouTube or Pinterest or Twitter and I have seen some very disturbing graphic images, which I was glad there was an option to report. And when I say that, I don't know how these things cropped up in my feed, but what I'm talking about is gore or horror images, like crime scene photos that seem completely out of place and also seem as though uh, there's a kind of morbid fascination and enjoyment, a kind of sadistic enjoyment in their exhibition. When I'm scrolling through Facebook 
with my kids standing over my shoulder especially, but even not just, I don't want to see that kind of stuff cropping up. I don't. I want to be able to say, nope, turn that off. And for that matter too, several times I have seen characters online, let's say in the comment section for a post or news story or some such, I have seen characters who were absolutely abusive and trolling and harassing others. And when I say that, I don't mean having a substantive debate back and forth. I mean, being just absolutely brutal and abusive to someone else, trying to destroy them, mind, body, and soul, and settling for what they could get online. I do think that needs to be moderated, and it's entirely appropriate to moderate evil online. But again, this goes back to the qualifier with regards to discrimination against the unvaccinated. It goes back to what Gen Z has to say about feminism. It goes back to the latest election polling and what we make of underdogs, whether we should always root for them or not. Do we understand the difference between right and wrong? Do we understand the difference between good and evil to be able to moderate good and evil, to be able to identify this is good speech and this is evil, what's being said? I think misinformation, so-called, is such a broad catch-all. If we know that we know that somebody is willfully, intentionally saying untrue things, but we can't prove it, well, then I think we should debate them. And I think sunlight is the best disinfectant. I think that's the whole idea behind journalism. When journalism is done right, I think journalism has gotten a bad rap because of corporate media being bought up by major financial interests, very, very powerful, very wealthy men and institutions who control the narrative to their own advantage. But journalism at its root should be a very positive influence in society if an accurate reporting of relevant details is being brought forward. If it's just a roundabout way of advertising or doing public relations or propaganda or deceiving and defrauding and manipulating people, well, that's evil. But good journalism, independent journalism being possible over Twitter, let's say, for instance, if somebody is doing an independent story on the Hunter Biden laptop, should we be moderating that because some FBI agent who donated money to the Clinton campaign or to Joe Biden's campaign calls it you know, misinformation? No, no, we shouldn't. That's unacceptable. If you've got Ayatollah Khomeini or Vladimir Putin making death threats against uh, protesters who are legitimately objecting to their women being raped, their children being murdered, their country being destroyed, actually peacefully protesting, do I think it's okay to moderate uh, even a head of state of some country? Yeah, you bet I do. Do I think that it's okay for Twitter to remove President Trump or to censor his content uh, when he's in office because he had a strongly worded statement against rioting in the U.S.? No, no, I don't. But this really brings it back to the question of, do we know the difference between good and evil? 
Do we understand the distinction between an actually peaceful protest on the one hand and rioting on the other hand? Do we understand the difference between somebody, let's say, sharing their opinion, ignorant as it may be, and us not liking it on the one hand, and someone actually murdering someone else? This idea that language is violence, speech is violence, to where if you disagree with somebody, you've destroyed them. That's got to go. That's not tenable. That cannot survive. How are we going to change each other's minds, persuade one another, come to a consensus, expand our understanding, grow as people, learn, adapt, work together, overcome, inhabit the same space, be neighbors, if we can't talk with each other when we disagree? And we do, whether we say it out loud, we do disagree. It's a sad kind of unity if the unity cannot be maintained if we admit to the things we already disagree about underneath it all. That's no unity at all. You know, in my last episode, I talked about the Christian mission in the third millennium, this statement by Catholics and evangelicals together, or evangelicals and Catholics together. They put evangelicals before Catholics in the name of their organization, but more Catholics signed it than evangelicals. And... It does seem to be more of a piece with a Catholic ecumenicism on Catholic terms. But nevertheless, that was one of the things that the more I thought about what bothers me with that statement, the more it occurred to me. What bothers me is that there's a claim of theological unity that is illusory. That's not real. We do not have theological unity with Rome. Now, we might have some points of agreement, but that's not the same thing as saying we're unified or that we should be unified. I think it's legitimate, and I agree with Carl Truman on this point, I think it's legitimate to say we're going to work together on some things that we agree on. That's fine. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Is it to my benefit to have friends who are Catholics, who are Jews, who are non-religious, is it to my benefit to be friends with them and to work together on things that we agree about that are good, that are for the welfare of the city to which Yahweh, my God, has brought me in my exile? If God tells me to do that, if I have good examples and good case studies in the scriptures, which I do, then yes. But that's very different than saying we must maintain theological unity in order to do that in order to work together on some of these other pieces. Can we work together to abolish human abortion with Roman Catholics and Orthodox Jews and non-religious people who have a conscience? Yeah. Should we? Absolutely. Can I vote for a probably Republican candidate who I do not have theological unity with? Yes. Is that legitimate biblically? Yes. Would I say, in the interest of supposedly seeking the welfare of the city, that I have theological unity with an Orthodox Jew or a Roman Catholic? No. No, I wouldn't. But nor do I need to. See, that kind of unity being insisted on, 
I think is half the problem. It's half the reason why we have this existential crisis that we do. It's half the reason why you have Gen Zers saying that feminism is extremism. A lot of young people in their 20s and 30s today grew up watching their mothers and their fathers get divorced, tear apart the family, tear apart the home, tear apart the childhoods of those children who now have become adults like me. And I think half the panic when there is a disagreement online or IRL in real life, I think half of the panic is due to young people not ever having seen it modeled, what it looks like to disagree about important things and still treat each other with respect, be courteous to each other, still work together in harmony, still follow through with our commitments. Unless it's violating the laws of God and man, can you please just accept that you have a disagreement on this? Admit to it. Yeah, you, you disagree. We have a disagreement. And we might even sometimes be upset about our disagreement. Because how in the world could you possibly think that? Man, I just don't understand. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Content moderation should be of the kind that prevents actual, actual abuse, assault, murder of people. Not in the abstract. See, what's, what's happened is, <laughs> what's happened is to criticize women, as long as they're of the left, by the way, it doesn't count if they're Republicans or conservatives, stay-at-home moms, homeschoolers, but if they're of the left, to criticize them is to do violence against them as women. A minority, even in playful jest, to put on a sombrero and a poncho on Halloween, because you're dressing up like you're from Mexico, but you're not from Mexico, but that's part of the idea of a costume is you're appropriating someone else's identity. That's the whole idea of wearing a costume, ladies and gentlemen. But that's offensive. If you're a white person, now I can get away with it because I'm an honorary Hispanic. Also apparently an honorary Calvinist. Uh, I learned that last night at Biblical Training Group. JP says he considers me a Calvinist, which is funny. Which is very funny. God bless you, JP. Roy Garcia declared me an honorary Hispanic. J.P. Chavez declared me an honorary Calvinist. So I don't know what happened, but moving to Colorado, I apparently became a Hispanic Calvinist. Go figure. Didn't see that one coming. But I asked my friends, John Paul and Roy, or Jose, what they think of this uh, video of this guy, Will Witt, going around, I think it was LA, and interviewing college students as to whether his costume was offensive. And he was wearing a fake mustache that was taped on very tackily, and a sombrero, had a poncho, and every one of them said, oh yeah, are you Mexican? No? Well then yes, I'm offended. But then he goes to like the Hispanic neighborhood And he's asking these like middle-aged Hispanic men, what do you think? And they're like, you look good. (laughs) Are you offended? No. (laughs) Why would I be offended? It's a a nice poncho. It's a nice sombrero. I'm not offended at all. (laughs) There have to be limits. There have to be limits. It cannot be 
just that somebody's going to get upset, we need to stop and ask the question of what is good and evil? What is right and wrong? What does God say? This is one of those ask your dad moments. Ask God for wisdom. That's what we need to be doing. Yes, we don't want to be rude to each other and then say, oh, I was just joking, right? That's foolish. He's spoken on that. Read Proverbs. We don't want to be harsh with each other. Sometimes we are, but we don't want to be. We shouldn't be. It stirs up strife, anger, conflict to say things harshly. A word softly spoken turns away wrath. But we need to be honest. We need to tell the truth. We need to cross-examine one another. Content moderation, I hope, at Twitter, moving forward, looks like people being able to actually legitimately cross-examine one another and not being allowed to destroy one another. Let's not say it's all or nothing to where to cross-examine someone, we will call cyberbullying and harassment. Or on the flip side, we will say there is no such thing as harassing and tormenting someone, disrespecting and abusing someone verbally, online, reputationally, psychologically, socially, just because we want to defend the right to cross-examine one another. I'll give you a perfect example, and then i got to run, because I've got furniture to move, I've got things to pack up on the main floor, I've got a family to muster on the task. Chrissy Teigen, a former model, I don't remember where all she supposedly modeled, but she's married to a famous uh, pop singer, John Legend. Chrissy Teigen was straight up telling young women she didn't like to kill themselves. Go kill yourself. That is unacceptable. That cannot be tolerated. But someone saying, hey, listen, this laptop was dropped off at the computer repair store and never picked up again. And there's a lot of very concerning content on it that does not reflect well on this candidate for president of the United States or his family or the deep state and its relationship to foreign governments and political opposition within America. The one of these should be moderated. The other of these we need to know about in a timely manner. For we're two years into the housing market crashing, fuel prices doubling, inflation spiraling out of control. This is super serious. It's very important. It's all the more reason why it's fantastic news that Elon Musk has just bought Twitter. It's fantastic news. I think a lot of people don't realize how important this is. They're just kind of used to losing. Like that's all there is. There's a very fatalistic kind of determinism that I think should not assume so much spiritual validity to when it's coming from Christians. Well, things are just going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back. You know what? We have a responsibility. We have work to do. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your strength. Let your light so shine before all men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not grow weary in doing good. Why? Because at the appointed time, you will reap a reward and a harvest if you don't give up. I, for one, 
refuse to be fatalistic. I refuse to throw in the towel. I refuse to say, it's all over, it's lost, call it. Because the moment you do that and it does turn around, are you ready? You could say, oh, I don't think that's going to happen. But you know what? You don't know. No man knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man cometh. Only the Father alone. So God knows when Jesus is coming a second time. We don't. This is kind of like the conversation we were having with our biblical training group last night about Calvinism and about predestination and about election. And again, JP made this great point. I could have high-fived him. He says, just because God knows who the elect are going to be, that doesn't mean I do. And he is a Calvinist. And that's okay. But that's a great point. Just because God knows who the elect are going to be, that doesn't mean I do. That doesn't mean I can just act like whatever. It's all determined. It's all predetermined. What's the point? What's the point of doing anything, being for anything, enjoying anything, saying anything, being anything? No, 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 no. No, that's not from God. That's not of God. Jesus said that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. He came to give us life more abundantly and everlasting in him. Abide in that. And if Jesus comes back in five minutes, may he find us busy serving him and doing whatever our hand finds to do with all our strength. But speaking of, speaking of doing things with our hands and all our strength, I got to go move a whole floor's worth of furniture as much as possible today. We're going to try and pace ourselves, but that means we need to have a pace today greater than me just podcasting all morning. So until next time, this is what I got. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.